0: Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jay. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world. Who are the Baha'is? Is Is the Baha'i faith part of Islam? What do Baha'is think about the Buddha? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way. Alright, thank you for joining us today on episode 8 of Religiously Literate. We're going to talk about, this week, the Baha'i faith. Uh, this is one of the world's newer religions. It was founded in 1863, although it has there are some things that happened before 1863 um, that led to its creation. Uh, the numbers on how many people there are or how many adherents there are to the Baha'i faith are kind of um, hard to determine, um, which I find interesting, given some things that we'll talk about later. Um, but roughly anywhere between seven and a half to eight million people, are practicing the Baha'i faith worldwide. Um, to be Baha'i, or like the word Baha'i itself, just means a follower of Baha, which we'll get into what that means later, too. Um, but I'm excited about this religion because this was a religion that was totally new for me to talk about and research. Um, so keep that in mind as
1: I ramble. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So I, I mean, I feel like I'm the one, I mean, my background's in religion, right? So I've studied a lot of religions. I actually, this was new to me like 12 years ago when I was in high school, this guy that I liked, he was considering converting to the Baha'i faith as I was considering converting to Islam. And so through that, I learned a lot, like through him and his studies, we went to the local Baha'i temple uh, where we live and we actually turned out that our local, one of the weathermen um, TV- there were, like, three uh, new stations. One a the local weatherman. he and his family were Baha'is. So he and his wife had converted, and then their children were born um, Baha'is. And so we went to school with them. And so we actually got to have, like, real connections with people who were, like, grown up in the Baha'i faith, which was really interesting. That's cool. But that is not... Why we are talking about it today? <laughs> so I think you know, one might ask, why are we going to talk about the Baha'i faith, particularly so early when there are so many other faiths and traditions we could pick from? And for me, I thought it was important. One because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think that there is this Western slash American belief that newer religions are rooted in Christianity, and this one just isn't. It's actually technically rooted in Islam. When you when we get to talking about, it, you'll see it's bigger than that, but some people consider this to be a splinter group of Islam. So it definitely doesn't meet the normal narrative of being rooted in Christianity that I think is kind of popular on this side of the world. Uh, Also, it's a religion that started in the last 150 years, which I think is cool considering everything else we've talked about is significantly older. So to be able to talk about something that's a little bit more contemporary, and you'll see that and some of the beliefs and practices that are happening in the Baha'i faith. And then finally, I think it's really interesting that because it's so contemporary, it addresses many of the issues that non-religious people often have with religion in terms of misogyny, equality, things like that, even disputes with Mm -hmm. science. Uh, The Baha'i faith really dissolves all of that and sees itself as... Hopefully the faith that everyone will convert to, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I really think that that's an interesting aspect of it. And so I wanted to move it up closer because it's something that we all could benefit from learning about. So that's a little bit why we're talking about it so early and talking about it it today, but maybe we should jump into some history. Sure. Okay. So um, in order to talk about the Baha'i faith, we have to first talk about, because it started in Iran, which is important to note so we kind of have to talk a little bit about shia islam which i know we skipped in the islam episode we will have an entire episode so this is a highly condensed version but basically the part of shia islam that you need to know that's relevant to the baha'i faith is that um shias regard muhammad's cousin and son-in-law ali as the rightful imam and so through his so we remind everyone what an imam is too oh, right, Imam is a leader in the community, and you'll note that after Muhammad died, there was a little bit of a struggle over who would be the next leader. Eventually, it wasn't Ali, who the Shia believe should have been the next leader. So to Shia Muslims, he is the first in a line of what are called the rightful rulers of Islam, and particularly in Iran— they and this has actually been the state religion since the sixteenth century there's they believe and they were to call the twelfer uh Shias, which is basically there are these twelve rightful imams, and the twelfth one disappeared at some point, and so there's this belief that this imam who supposedly has disappeared still exists in a, a realm that we are not connected to, but at some point the 12th imam will return as the Mahdi, known as, which means rightfully guided one, and he will lead everyone to the day of judgment. Quick note, so many of the terms in this episode are Persian or Farsi, which is very similar to Arabic. There are differences, but there are also some similarities. I have studied Arabic, so I just want to say that, I mean, I'm not an expert in Arabic, so one, we're probably going to mispronounce a lot of things. Two, my Farsi pronunciation will probably be really bad because I will mistake it for Arabic pronunciation, so just want to put that out there as a disclaimer. So, so now we have the context, 12th Imam has disappeared, right? So let's talk about the Baha'i faith and its origins. So in the 19th century, people in Iran began reacting to the unrest and economic decline within the country in various ways. Uh, Europe was starting to infringe in that part of the country or part of the world. So there's a sense of where are we going to be colonized? We don't want to be colonized. What do we do, particularly since throughout history, the Persian Empire had been so robust. And now there's this moment of decline. So there was a lot of anxiety, we'll say, within Iran. And so in response to this, people started associating with fringe movements that were associated with Orthodox Islam, particularly Orthodox Shi'ism. And one movement in particular was the Sheikhi movement, which was named after Sheikh Ahmed Asi. And his believer, or his followers, sorry, believed that religious knowledge could be obtained through direct contact with the Prophet Muhammad and Imams. Obviously, this did not fly in uh, Shia Islam, so his followers were immediately persecuted. But um, he this didn't really last very long. Uh, he dies, and then his successor, uh, Saeed Kazin Rashti, began preaching that a hidden imam, the, the bab, or gate, bab means uh, gate or door, would soon appear, and... So people start looking for the Bob. And then, of course, this guy dies. And so there's, a, there's unrest in this uh, shaky community because they don't know who's going to be the next leader. So then in May of 1844, Mullah Muhammad Hussein Bushui visits Shirazi, and he meets Saeed Ali Muhammad Shirazi. And Mullah then stays with Ali Muhammad and they're discussing the future of the uh, shaky community. As they're talking, Ali asked Mullah, you know, what are the qualities in the next leader? Do you think that I have the qualities? And so Mullah is kind of like, this is interesting. And over the, next, the course of the next few days, they talk and Ali Muhammad demonstrates his skills via conversations in theor- theological writing on why he should be the next leader. So officially on May 22nd of 1844, Mullah, Muhammad, or Mullah accepts Ali Muhammad as the Bab and converts and begins converting people. And this is the beginning of what is known as the Bab movement and people who followed the Bab were known as Babbies. So he's he's out, he's Preaching, converting people, the movement is, is going well. In 1845, he was declared by the Iranian government as blasphemous, and so he's put on house arrest. He then escapes in September of 1846, but then was again caught in 1847. Um, and then in, in the, by the time of the eight, late 1840s, it's estimated that roughly 100,000 or 2% of Iran's population were uh, Babis. So then he he's getting really bold. He's got a lot of followers. He believes he's doing the Lord's work. So in 1848, he declares that he's the hidden imam. And this, my friends, is the moment when everything changes. He had already be considered a threat to the Iranian government, but now this is game over because when the belief is that when the hidden imam returns, not only would a new religious order pres- uh, supersede Islam, but Islam would no longer exist and the current government would have to dissolve and follow this new leader. Iran was not about this. So um, he is persecuted and soon will be executed. But during this time, in addition to making this claim, he also makes the number 19 significant, going so far as to create a calendar of 19 months, each having 19 days. And so later on in the Baha'i tradition. Um, this will be eighteen forty four. Will be considered year one of the calendar, and this is based on the year that the Bob declared himself to be um, the Hidden Imam. This same year, so in July of that year, he's put on trial for heresy and convicted. He escapes the death pop the death penalty. Sorry, because of his popularity, but this also creates a problem for the government. So. Because if he's supposedly the hidden imam, the government must dissolve, as I've already said. So they began systematic oppression of his followers, and what happens, it turns into like a kind of a battle. So between October 1848 uh, to early 1851, the Babis are fighting the Iranian government. Eventually, the Babis lose. Um, It's estimated between 2,000 and 3,000 of them lost their lives. After this defeat, uh, the Bab is taken to to Tabriz. He's executed by firing squad on July 9th, 1850. So, and then the kind of last major thing about the Babs is that later on, they try to attempt an assassination on the Shah, which fails. Now that was a lot at once. What is, how does this relate to Baha'is? So while the uh, Bab was in prison, his, and, it was clear that he was gonna be executed. His followers began to wonder how wh- how are we gonna move forward. And so two followers in particular who had been leaders in their community were half-brothers Mirza Hussein Ali Nuri, who would later become Baha'u'llah, meaning glory of God, and Mirza Yaha, Yaha Nuri, who would be Subi-e-azal. They had joined the Babi movement early on. But uh, they weren't really affiliated with the Shaky movement. So they were a little different. Anyway, what you need to know is the brothers kind of fight for power within. They become the next leaders or try to become the next leaders. Uh, Shubi Iyazal, they're, they're fighting for, they they gain some followers independently. Iran is like, you have to go. So they are both exiled. Uh, Shubi Iyazal ends up in Cyprus has a fringe movement that kind of maintains for a while. When he dies, it kind of dissolves. Um, To this day, it's it's mostly his family at this point who kind of maintain his notoriety. But for the longest time, they're just known as a fringe Islam movement in Cyprus. Um, Our friend Bahá'u'lláh goes on, gets moved to Turkmenistan and then parts of Turkey and eventually is exiled to Um, Akka, which is in present-day Israel. And that's where he goes, that's where his uh, followers follow him, and that's where he sets up the Baha'i faith. Uh, He eventually is on house arrest for a little bit, and then he's able to actually live in in the city. So, based on where he lived and what he has done, there are some sites that are there now, but he dies in um, Akka, Aka, sorry, um, his one of his sons is named the next leader. There's some dispute about this, but the son really kind of makes some official things happen uh, in in the faith, and then he names his grandson to be the next follower, who makes a lot of administrative things, and that's kind of moving forward to the Baha'i faith. In the end, I realize I condensed a lot because. We're going to explain a lot of what was hap- what has happened in the beliefs, and I don't want to undercut that part. But that is basically how we get the Baha'i faith um, started in eighteen sixty three, as Ryan said, and moving forward. So let's talk about some other things. <laughs> beliefs. <laughs> um.
0: So Baha'is are monotheistic, um, just like. Islam, like we mentioned before, just like Islam, they uh, believe in the same God as Christians and Jews. Um, The word for or the the name for God is Baha. um, And that just translates to God's most greatest name. And so that gives you Baha'i. And they believe that a... So here, how they're connected to Judaism and Christianity and Islam is that they, like what you've alluded to, is that they believe that there has been a series of divine messengers over time that includes people like Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, but also Buddha. Um, I read some stuff about Krishna. So they're very pluralistic in their sense of the of like the religious landscape of the world, which we'll get into in a second, um, and Bahula Bahula is believed to be the most recent messenger of God. Uh, they also believe that you can never fully understand God, which I thought was somewhat interesting because they're very explicit about it. Um, in that the sen- in the sense that you know, there's just no not that there's no sense in trying, but that you're just never going to fully understand God. And they're very cut and dry about that. As far as where they see themselves in the world as a religion, uh, they have a somewhat evolutionary perspective on society and religion, meaning that they believe that there is some ultimate truth that every religion is speaking to. And so, again, they're very pluralistic, meaning that they they view most other religions as valid and authentic as they are just sort of steps in this evolution. Of course, they place Baha'i at the top of this evolution, which, I mean, isn't totally surprising. Um, and that they they think that this pluralism of religious belief will ultimately be resolved by total world unity based on Baha'i concepts. So that's, you know, how they're placing themselves at the top. And the, the I think the, the biggest goal of, for Baha'is is is this worldwide unity.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think to put it in a slightly different terms. So I think that they believe that um, God has come in various manifestations through founders of different religions. And so through that manifestation, God has brought a message to his people that is relevant to that Mm -hmm. culture and time. And so when a new people or a new time needs a new word, God presents that. And, and, I think in any other faith, these would be called prophets, but they kind of distinctly refer to it as manifestations Mm -hmm. of God. But I think here prophet can be simultaneous or they can be, you can use them simultaneously. Um, And so I think the idea is that we all have, all of these messages are the same. They've been tweaked a little bit based on the time and, and culture. But as you go through, like each new prophet brings the more clear message that's relevant to you, and ideally, the Baha'i uh, is just a, one in a line of these prophets. And as we all get closer and closer, we will follow what the Baha'i, what the Baha'u'llah says, because that's the most relevant and clearest message. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Um Which gets into like what I was going to bring up next. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> um So like you were saying they believe that each of these manifestations is bringing a sort of a message that is sort of tailored to the culture in which that message is being received and so in that way I thought it was kind of interesting as an anthropologist that they're you know very or somewhat culturally relativistic in that sense mm. in that they don't see they well they kind of do but they kind of don't they don't see themselves or their way of being religiously as necessarily the best way and that there is no other way to be religious. Um, I think that gets kind of muddy when, you know, they talk about unifying the world under a set of Baha'i concepts, but from a practical perspective, in terms of seeking religious truth, they, whatever that is, they, they, See themselves as, or they they try to do that without their own cultural bias. So, if you're uh, trying to understand, you know, Hinduism, you're not trying to understand Hinduism through a Bahai lens. You're trying to understand Hinduism through a Hindu lens, um, which oh, I think I is which I think is interesting. That's um, something yeah. that I got out of my research. Um. So there's also try there. There's this. Um, idea of a world order of Ba'u'llah, which has some like, I don't know how many, one, two, three, four. Basically, these are the concepts under which Baha'is aspire to unify the world or the world's population. And so the idea is that, number one, religion is the only thing that can create true unity that um, so that the Baha'i faith sees itself as this one religion that can unify the world. Um, But they also believe that religious truth is somewhat relative. And again, that gets back into this idea of, you know, it's very culturally contextual, which I think, for me, feels somewhat hypocritical, in a way, or paradoxical, I guess. Um, I don't know how you feel about that.
1: Well, no, I don't feel that way. Because I think for them, that all religions are like, the Baha'i faith is just a revamped version of all other faiths
0: okay, okay, that makes sense
1: so to be Baha'i is also technically to be Christian to, speak, to right. be Jewish to be Hindu right like this is we're all the same we're all we all believe in the same creator or God and we have right. very similar values the difference is that at different times those values have been slightly de- have been dependent on the specific like, the particular culture that we're in mm-hmm. but In essence, they're all the same. So to be a Baha'i, that's just the final um, editing, I guess, of the faith. And, but you can still be, I mean, I I think it's very similar in like, so Christians see themselves as a revision of Judaism. Muslims see themselves as a revision of Christianity and Judaism. I think Baha'is see themselves in the next still line. So it's still the those, same right. faith. Of course, they include Buddhism, Hinduism, and other faiths. It's still mm. the same idea in practice. It's just the final revision. So I don't see them as competing. Right. Rather, just the same thing, but the brand new version. It's like the new iPhone, right? Right. Same right. thing, but new um, apps and abilities. But, Essentially the same thing. Right.
0: No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, So the next one is that religion must be in accord with science and reason, um, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, And you had said something. What did you say about this?
1: Sorry. I'm like pulling you into my section. (laughs) (laughs) I think what I said was that some people might find this difficult to comprehend that religion and science can go hand in hand. But I think, again, it's a product of its time, right? It's it's created in the mid-19th mm-hmm. century. Science is really booming at this point. And so I think that it makes sense if you are part of a religion that is relative to your time and culture. Science is important. Why would we disregard right. science? Um. I probably sell like more. No, I think that was good. No, that I was good. Yeah. Um, okay. Also,
0: they believe that prejudices, that any prejudices at all that divide people need to be eliminated. So they also have this sort of social justice component involved just kind of like with the six that we talked about earlier. And um, we talked about it a little bit in Islam. Um, th- this was, I found this was kind of unique too. Um, this idea that everyone should be as educated as it is individually possible for them to be educated. Uh, So there's like this big influence or big, uh, big importance placed on education uh, and that's built into their communities still today.
1: Yeah. For me, again, this is a part of culture and history. I think the culture part being that having come from um, Iran where Islam is, And oftentimes some of the most learned people in Islam are men who go to schools to learn about Islam. And so there are just, there's a, there's a, in the same way that in Hinduism, in Islam, there are often a class of people who are much more educated and have much more access to the text. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a reaction to that, wanting everything to be accessible to everyone. Like why should a certain group of people have all the access and knowledge? I also think again, mid 19th century, sorry, that we are in a cultural shift and education is important. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense to me that if God has spoken to me in this time, education is going to be foundational to the movement that I am creating.
0: So next in the uh, list of concepts is that this idea that men and women are completely equal. And I think, um, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but from my research, it seemed like this was actually a little more practically realized than some of the other traditions we've talked about so far.
1: Yes and no. Okay. For the most part, like in everyday practice, yes. I would say that overwhelmingly it is true until you get to the administrative structure right? Right. when women aren't allowed in the universal house of justice. We'll get to that later. But aside from that, you are correct.
0: And then the final goal is to, um, or I guess this is the sort of primary goals. The last like concept is their primary goals of the Baha'i faith itself are to create a single global language, government and complete peace in the world. Um, And it's through all of these things that are listed previously that that would happen.
1: Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is per, I'm not saying that this isn't something that Haula firmly believed but i'm wondering if this is also a product of having been oppressed in iran mm-hmm. if the idea that you know world peace and harmony all humans regardless of your nationality your gender your race religion we would have unity i'm wondering if that is a product like having experienced depression having to be exiled if that becomes paramount for you because of what you've personally Mm -hmm. experienced.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about some practices then. Um, First of all, I think we should start with scriptures, uh, just because they kind of outline some things and they become important for other practices later on. Um, so there are three primary texts uh, they call, and I'm not going to try and do the prnu- the Farsi words. I'm just going to give you. Do you want me to try? You can try if you want. Yeah.
1: Um, I'll just say them in order and then you can, okay. you know, say okay. them. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's kitab e Akhtas, the Tablet of Carmel, which was for Mount Carmel, which is in Akka, which is in Israel. Uh, kitab e ahad
0: So all three of those books were written by Bahula. Um, which we just discovered they were all written in the last 20 years of his life. Um, the The book of the covenant is actually Bahá'u'lláh's last will and testament. And so this is where he names his successor and gives some of the basic outline for what then becomes, what is later developed into the administrative structure of uh, the Baha'i faith. Um, so scriptures figure into Personal practice on a daily basis. So daily reading of portions of scripture is a required practice, Um, and it seems to me that these are just like in most of the other traditions we've talked about, or maybe more so than some of the ones we've talked about. These are like super important for like understanding how you should act as a Baha'i. It includes the basic teachings, like for instance, the book that I used for most of my research for this episode is called Baha'i Basics. And almost, I would say probably maybe 60% of the book is actual direct quotes or scriptural passages um, from one of these or, you know, each of these books.
1: Oh, that's really cool.
0: Yeah, so that was kind of interesting because they it was cool because it gives the actual like scriptural justification and then it would also give like the sort of interpretation like what that actually means. Um, today, which is really interesting for someone who's like, has has like next to no knowledge of Baha'i. So in addition to reading daily uh, or daily scriptural readings, prayer is also a super important part of the Baha'i faith. Um, It's not as if we're, if we're thinking in terms of like all of the different traditions we've talked about so far, um, it's not as rigid as islam in terms of prayer and being you know specifically five times a day and you have these specific times you have to do it um but it is not as free form and like whenever you want to as say um maybe lakota traditions are kind of like that i guess they do typically pray at least once a day and the that one prayer is or that one instance of prayer is always Um, a recitation of one of three of what they call the obligatory prayers, which I'll put, we'll put a link to the Baha'i obligatory prayers in the show notes. So you can go actually look at them because they're like kind of organized like as a short medium and a long version, which I thought was kind of cool. So it's like, you know, okay, well I don't have time today to do the long version. So we're going to do the short version and that's seen as just as good. um, At least for my reading.
1: Well, I read that there are some um, suggestions on Mm -hmm. prayer. So like um, for the short prayer, to do it at least once a day, typically at noon, a person would do the medium prayer sometime in the afternoon, you pick. And then the long prayer would occur at least once in 24 hours so that someone would be doing all three. Sure. Right, right. Um, They just... You know, and I'm assuming, like, if you, you know, say you have a meeting at noon, then if you did it at like 1130, I don't think mm-hmm. that that would, you know, but there did seem to be some guidance. I do think that you're right in that a person needs to pray at least once a day. Uh, but I, I think that maybe more Orthodox or devout people might pray, pray up to right. three times a day, doing at least one of the prayers within 24 hours. Right or, sorry, at least one, one of, of all each three. Of them. Yes. I got
0: you. (laughs) So, so with that said, um, going back to this idea that Baha'i sort of rises out of Islam or becomes a sort of splinter group of Islam. um, Some of their prayer practices are clear reflections of um, how prayers are performed in Islam. Um, So for instance, before these prayers, you're supposed to ritually cleanse yourself almost exactly the same as you would in Islam uh, when you like enter into a mosque. Um, there's also a specific direction that you face. Um, and so you're um, you're supposed to face toward um, where Baula is buried. And this is like um, it's the Kibli, which I thought was interesting because the Qibla is the... Uh, the direction that you face for Muslims to face Mecca. So I guess that's just probably some linguistic thing because they're like close languages, but I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, There aren't any specific postures or at least that was what I found in my research. Um, So it's not that series of postures that you find in Islam. And so, although the book that uh, the Baha'i Basics book that I use is written primarily for an American audience and it's meant to sort of um, uh, convert you, I guess, or like it's supposed to be a book that if you're interested in converting to Baha'i, to the Baha'i faith, that you would read this book and it would give you kind of the basics. And it kind oh, of okay. makes this when it's talking about prayer, it's saying like things like, you know, you could if you wanted to, you know, have specific postures that are based on a tradition that you're familiar with or something like that. But that there's nothing sort of obligatory about them.
1: Yeah. And I would also say, in my experience, having been to a Baha'i house of worship um, mm-hmm. as well, I don't know, maybe we'll talk about the temples uh, later on, which are kind of different, but um, in a specific Baha'i community, it's, and then, and also my research, it doesn't seem to be a specific language for prayer. So I think if someone is able, then you can recite the prayers in Farsi or Persian. Um, but also your local vernacular is just fine. So I was in one of the books I was reading, the author had done basically a case study in Denmark. And so mm-hmm. noted how prayers, uh, when different people got up to speak, they would say recite prayers. And so um, in this particular place in Denmark, it was in Danish, English, Farsi and Chinese. So I think that it just depends. I don't know if there is merit or, you know, if you considered really devout, if you learn the prayers and are mm-hmm. able to recite them in Farsi, or if you, it's just as fine if you for recite them in your, your local language that I don't know.
0: You know, it might be a good time to talk about the temples now, because what I was reading about the temples is that a sort of standard quote unquote you know, big air quotes here, traditional Baha'i temple or place of worship has nine doors.
1: Yeah, and, oh, go ahead.
0: And and so like the number nine is important and we can get to that in a minute. But um, what I, from what I was reading, the justification for that was that it's meant to be a sort of outward expression of the fact that they are like welcoming of people from every race, every country, every ethnic group, Every language and all of that. So, I think maybe that may be why what you're reading was talking about that and the differences in language and stuff. But yeah, I didn't see anything like that was talking about, you know, if you can say the prayers in Farsi, that's like better or something like you have in Islam.
1: Yeah. So, speak to the temple. So, there are only seven temples. Uh typical people and people meet, you can meet anywhere you can meet in someone's home, which is very common. You can meet in a community center or building for the community in Wichita, they have like a community building, which serves as a community center. It serves as a place I'm of worship. So where people meet generally is not a temple. It is either a home or specific building. The temples themselves, there are only seven temples um, and they're spread out throughout the world. So there's um, the Baha'i House of Worship in Australia. There's one in Uganda, one in Germany, one in Panama, uh, one in Samoa, one in India. And um, th- there's one in the United States as well. Yes. Uh, the first temple was actually built in Turkmenistan. But it was, Oh, uh, let me think. It was attacked initially and then an earthquake damaged it. So it was demolished. And I Mm -hmm. think after that, the next temple to be built was the one in North America. This is in, it's right out, it's Wilmot, Illinois. It's right outside of Chicago. So uh, the Americans were some of the first to join the movement after moving to Israel. So the cornerstone of this temple in Wilmot was actually placed in nineteen twelve. That's when I started building it, but it wasn't completed until nineteen fifty-three. Um and so so that's there's that one. I've only I've been to the one in um Delhi, which is one of the most famous ones because it is built to look like a lotus flower. And oh, then yeah, I think
0: I saw pictures there are yeah.
1: nine nine pools around it. So if you look at it from an aerial view, it looks like a lotus flower sitting on water. And um, so I've been to that one, it's pretty cool, I'd like to go to, and I actually I wouldn't have known about it unless my friend, he, when I mentioned I was going to India, he was like, you have to go to this temple, and I'm like, okay, cool, and it actually turned out to be one of the most interesting and fascinating experiences of my life. The temple itself, it's so it's a large room, and there are benches there, but it's some of the rules of the temple, no musical instruments, only voices, that's the only musical instrument that can be, used in the temple and there as you said there are nine entrances it's typically just a big room where people gather and oftentimes because they're international they do lots of different programming for the local community they're often large tourist attractions as well and you can take tours but you basically it's a place where you can go in sit and reflect because meditation is really important in um, the Baha'i faith. I would say meditation and prayer are probably the two most important things a Baha'i person can do. So it's a, it's a space for that. You get this, there's also images are not allowed. So, you know, blank walls, you go and you reflect. Uh, and it was really cool to be at the one in India because it again, it is a big tourist attraction. So of course there are like Indians everywhere, but then you see people from all over the world And you're sitting together in this space where you reflect and it's pretty quiet except for people walking in and you can stay as long as you want. And so I stayed for about 10, 15 minutes and be able to see the turnover of all the different people who were in the space was really
0: cool. Um, So I guess we can talk about the importance of the number nine. Right now, because it sort of overlays sure. some of the other things I have to talk about. Um, so the number nine is important for Bahais um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it was nine years after the Bob that Bahá'u'lláh he like receives his mission. I guess is a good way to put it. Um, the number nine is also sort of um, interpreted as representing unity and completeness because it is the highest single digit number. The calendar is a solar calendar. It's got 19 months of 19 days. Um, If you do the math, that doesn't quite add up to 365 days in a year like we have um, in the like standard Western calendar. Um,
1: It's exactly 361 days.
0: There we go. Um, And so extra, there's an extra four days that are added every so many years. And so you have like a leap year and those are added at a particular place in the calendar for a particular reason um, and there are a whole bunch of important holidays throughout the um, Baha'i calendar but every month um, they have what's called the 19 day feast which this is held on this is held at the beginning of the month right yes it's the first day of the month okay that's what I thought I can remember if it was the last day or the first day um, so this is held on the first day of the month, it is basically just like a monthly community gathering, more or less, um, where a whole bunch of different things happen. So one, it's a sort of spiritual, um, a moment to like, be, you know, to have spiritual devotion, and they'll read scriptures and prayer, pray together and sing together and things like that. Um, But it's also a place to like have, you know, community discussion to talk about what's going on in the community to plan events. It's also just a time to be like totally social with other Baha'is, which I thought was really interesting. They like work that in intentionally.
1: Yeah. I read that uh, Shofi Effendi made it so that there are three parts. There is the spiritual part where someone might do some readings, might say some inspirational words. There is the administrative part. And then there's a social part.
0: Yeah. I think I thought that was really cool. Um, and then there's just a whole bunch of other holidays throughout the year. So they're based on, um, like birth and death of the Bob, and um, I don't have them in front of me. Um, yes,
1: yeah, so there's de- there's a declaration <laughs> of, the, of the of the Bob. There's the birth and death dates of the Bob and Baha'u'llah. There is Nowruz, nah which is technically the Zoroastrian New Year, yeah. but is also in Iran known as the Iranian International New Year. So this is the Iranian-Persian tie. So Iran- any people of Iranian descent are celebrating this all over the world. It's not unique to Baha'is. Um, and then there are, in total, there are um, nine major holidays that you take off of work. So those are included. And then there is uh, Rivdin, which is 12 days. And this commemorates when Baha'u'llah was declared a prophet or manifestation of God. The first ninth, and 12th days of Rivden are really important. And then there's two minor holidays that are important, but you don't have to take off of work. And those include the day of the covenant and uh, Abdul Baha's death date. So,
0: And one thing about the new year too is it's not, what makes it different, like what makes it special is it's on March 21st. It's not yes. on like January, like we think of it.
1: Yes, and that is officially the new year of the Bahá'í calendar. Uh, I have this really cool graphic that kind of it. So it has in the middle the nineteen Bahá'í months, and mm-hmm. then surrounded it are the uh, the calendar that we use. I always forget what it's called. So <laughs> um, yeah, I forget too. The so there's that, and then it kind of mentions the different days. The cool thing though is that so the first nine months, uh, which I'll like, Baha is the first one, Jalal is the second one. So those that's also the, the first the name of the first that day, right? So like the first month is is the first day of the month. The second month is the second day of like the name is the same basically, through nine, right, and then right. it changes. Um, and then also a secular holiday, but is actually really important, is United Nations Day, which is October 24th. It's often celebrated among Baha'is because they firmly believe in the mission of the United Nations and actually work really closely with United Nations. So it's very often that uh, official members of the Baha'i faith will speak on behalf of the faith towards world peace and all these things.
0: Right on. That's cool. Our calendar is called the Gregorian calendar. I looked it up. Yes.
1: I knew it was sort of like, but I always, I want to say the Georgian. So, which is a derivative of that, but that's why I was like, "Mm, I'm not going to say that.
0: I always want to say it's the Augustinian calendar, but that's totally Mm -hmm. not right. Like that's very, very not right. (laughs) Okay. So um, I guess the only, I mean, the only other thing I had about practice apart from the fact that like meditation is super important for Baha'is and a lot of different sort of, um, sort of like uh, manifestations. Um, So like prayer is seen as a type of meditation. um, But also, you know, in some of these, in some of the temples and like on Mount Carmel, which did we talk about why why Mount Carmel is
1: important? Oh, no, we didn't talk about why Mount Carmel is important. You want to throw down on why Mount Carmel is important? I've been to Mount Carmel. Uh, that's why I think uh, you should. <laughs> <laughs> Mount Carmel is important because after Baha'u'llah dies, he names, his uh, he names his successor Abdul Baha, which is one of his sons. The other son disputes this and actually has a lot of popularity in Akka. So Abdul Baha moves from Akka to Mount Carmel, which is or moves to Haifa, and sets up shop there. And his followers go there. Uh, while he's there, he decides he is out looking and um, sees Mount Carmel and decides that this is the place that he should uh, purchase. I also believe that there is this is really important to Christians and Jews because something with Elijah happened here. He begins to purchase parts of Mount Carmel and this, and and then goes on to make this kind of what will become the administrative center, but sets up the Baha'i Gardens and things like that. So it's really important now because it is the center of Baha'i administration, the Universal House of Justice, which we did not talk about. is housed there. uh, The archives are housed there. There are the Baha'i Gardens, which one can tour. I was able to go to the Baha'i Gardens. It's interesting because they do tours every hour on the hour, I think or at least two or three times a day. Uh, But they do them in Farsi, Hebrew, because it's in Israel, in English. And so I happened to go, the first one I went, like in the morning, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the tour was full. And so they're like, oh, we have a tour this afternoon at 3 o'clock that's open. So I come back, but the only tour that they were giving was in Hebrew but the only three of us on the tour and the two people who actually spoke Hebrew were like, we speak English so you can give the tour in English. And I was like, thank you. But otherwise I would have just gone on this tour that was in Hebrew because I wanted to see the garden so badly, but you can, you can go. uh, This is also a site of pilgrimage. So Akka where Baha'u'llah is buried is the holiest site in the Baha'i faith. The second most important place is Mount Carmel. And that's where people go for pilgrimage. And during pilgrimage, they open up their the, the, the Bob is there is a um, a tomb for the Bob, and so they open that up, and a Baha'i faithful are allowed to see that during this time. And I, I believe that pilgrimage happens over the course of uh, two or three days. It's over, of course, a few days, and they take you in groups of one hundred and twenty, and so you um, you get to see these things. You get to have tea and chat and worship with the uh, nine justices in the universal house of justice. Uh, and so the, and so there are certain things that only Baha'i people have access to. There's a photo of the Bob and Baha'u'llah that are on display. Only time they're on display is during pilgrimage. Um, all this happening out Mount, Mount Carmel. So it's really important in terms of administrative, but it's also important religiously for Baha'is to go there, the final thing I'll say about Mount Carmel is that in the same way that Mormons have missions, you can sign, it's not called a mission, but basically you can spend a year or a time working at Mount Carmel and, and, you know, as part of your faith. And that can be like, I knew someone who was like security, um, but that can be giving tours, different administrative things that you can be doing on Mount Carmel. So it's just like the center of the Baha'i faith.
0: So meditation and how that's related to Mount Carmel is that um, there's not, so like prayer is seen as a form of meditation, but there's also like this sort of amorphous category of meditation that Baha'is can practice. And it's not like in Buddhism, there's like kind of specific ways to meditate. Um, or there can be depending on what type of Buddhism you're practicing. Um, but in Baha'i or for the Baha'i faith, that's not necessarily the case, but there is an emphasis placed on meditation in whatever form that you decide to like meditate in. And so, um, one of the things that people can, people do on, um, when they go to Mount Carmel is meditate in these gardens, um, and they can do kind of whatever they want to do. And I think, did I put a thing in the show notes? I will put a video in the show notes of the Baha'i gardens from Mount Carmel. So you can kind of get an idea because they're pretty spectacular. It's pretty cool. Um, so the only other thing that I have for practice, which isn't really a practice thing, I guess it's I don't really know what it is. But um, is that the administrative structure for the Baha'i faith?
1: Oh, um, because before I we think, yeah, that. I have um, three things.
0: Okay, go ahead. Um, so
1: one, there's fasting. So just like mm. how Muslims have to fast during the month of Ramadan, Baha'is fast in the month of Allah, which is the 19th month of the year. So you fast for 19 days and you fast during um, when during daylight hours. Interesting, just like in Islam and Judaism, where a new day starts at sunset, that's also true in the Baha'i mm. faith. Um. So, people. But the cool thing about fasting in the last month of the year is that when that month is over and your fasting is over, you're immediately into the new year. So, I think that that's really cool. But during this time, you will abstain from food, drink, and tobacco during daylight hours. Also, I want to talk about weddings and funerals. So, uh, weddings—they're pretty simple. You, the couple, gives a wedding vow—a vow, uh, sorry—to each other. But they both must have the consent of their parents, which I thought was interesting. Uh, It's usually authorized by the local spiritual assembly. So that's what they typically call the community, a spiritual assembly. So it has to be authorized by them. But just because it's authorized by them, there's no clergy or ministers in the Baha'i faith. So as long as it's authorized by the community, you can have uh, a rabbi, a priest, whoever marry you, uh, justice of the peace. Um, they do believe in chastity. chastity. Wow, why can't I say chastity? Chastity. Chastity. Like, <laughs> All right, let's try it again. Uh, they do believe in chastity before marriage. You can use birth control, and abortion is permitted. It's not encouraged, but there's nothing against having an abortion in the Baha'i text. Uh, divorce is also permitted, but it's highly discouraged so that's stuff around weddings and then when it comes to death there is a communal prayer for the dead and this is all this is somewhat misleading because bahais like highly believe that you do not have communal prayer so you don't pray together people like you can see someone saying or setting a prayer in front of you but collectively they do not pray together so this communal prayer is the community is around and someone performs the prayer Prayer that occurs is the same prayer that has been recited since the time of the Bob. The body is washed and wrapped in five pieces of either cotton or silk. A ring is f- placed on the finger of the deceased. And the ring says, again, I don't know, this can be local vernacular or maybe Persian. There was no indication in what language it had to be in. But it says... I came from God and returned to him, detached from all, save him, holding fast to his name, the merciful, the compassionate. And so they place that on your uh, finger, and then you are placed in a coffin with your feet facing uh, towards where uh, Baha'u'llah is buried. You cannot be cremated in uh, the Baha'i faith, and you have to be buried as soon as possible within an hour of where the death occurred, which is why... The, but it's interesting because the Bob definitely did not die in Israel but has been enshrined in Haifa but that's right. why Baha'u'llah is in Accra because and not in I'm um, not Carmel because mm-hmm. that's they're not within an hour of each other um you're supposed to write a will it's highly encouraged that you write a will but in the book I was reading it mentioned how even though people write wills, I guess maybe because of the structure of it, whatever. Oftentimes, they're disregarded by the local government. So I'm not sure if like how that works out, but you're supposed to write it well. And then once a person is, once they die, this communal prayer that they say, there are six verses of this prayer. So first they read a prologue that was written by Baha'u'llah. Then they recite the six verses, but they recite them individually. So you'll say the first verse, You say it 19 times, then you say the second verse 19 times, and so on until you've completed it. And those are the funeral rites. The final thing I'll say is that the way that people greet each other is allah u so probably allah u which means God is most glorious. And that's all I have. So you can go back to talking about the administrative structure. Before we go back to that, though. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah.
0: I wonder about, like, the whole burial thing. So, like, what if you're, like, a, like in the armed forces and you, like, die overseas? Like, how does that work?
1: Then you have to be buried within an hour of where you died. Huh. So you couldn't be buried in a military right. uh, grave in the U.S., I guess. But what I also, I'm wondering how many Baha'is serve in... The military well and though. that
0: was what i was wondering too like because of like their whole idea for world peace and yeah like i'm that.
1: imagining that they probably get an um, exemption due to being pacifists you're probably right
0: so the last thing that i want to talk about is not really like i said it's not really a practice thing it's more of an organizational structure thing um, because i thought that was it was kind of interesting and i think that as far as the religions that we've talked about so far, we haven't really come upon one that has such a rigid organizational structure. Um, and I don't think we'll come across another one like this until we get to Catholicism. Um, so the Baha'i Faith has like this really somewhat hierarchical structure of different groups of elected members. Um, and so You have at the top, you have the Universal House of Justice, which I think you've mentioned Mm -hmm. so far or alluded to. And this is the sort of supreme legislative body. Um, And there are nine members and there are nine members in each one of these. um, Each one of these uh, parts of their structure. And these folks reside in Haifa, Israel. And basically what they do is they can legislate and amend things that the Bahu Law did not teach about. Um, so anything that's happened that, you know, with modern technology in the last 150 years that Bahu Law didn't write about, they get to legislate on and they can decide to change their minds as things change and contexts become different and things like that. Um, and so these nine folks are elected by, the National Spiritual Assemblies, which these are, that's the next level underneath the Universal House of Justice. Can I so say the national spiritual Assemblies the are, Universal House of Justice? Yes, go
1: ahead. So it was declared yeah. by uh, Shogi Effendi that this, Israel would be the one place where there's no established Baha'i community. So people in the Universal House of Justice, they don't have a like community that they're a part of. They don't participate. The one this is the one time in a Baha'i's life where they will not participate in the 19-day feasts. So the holidays that happen every 19th or on the first day of the month, they don't participate in those. So it's kind of interesting because those are like really important. But because they didn't want to establish a community, therefore having a hierarchy, that this community is better because it's in you know one of the most holy places. Mm -hmm. There's no community whatsoever. And when you're in that Universal House of Justice, you just don't do these community things, and you don't go to a um you don't do the holidays you don't do the community things so i just wanted to put that out there
0: yeah yeah um so back to the national spiritual assembly these are groups of nine members who are elected annually from adult um behind members in their countries also back to the universal house of justice those justices serve for five-year terms um So yeah, so the National Spiritual Assembly, every country where there are Baha'is, there is a National Spiritual Assembly, and those Baha'is in those countries elect those folks. Um, They just deal with things that are going on in their country, in the Baha'i community. Um, Then from the National Spiritual Assemblies, you have the Regional Baha'i Councils. So these serve as, and they're set up very similarly to the national assemblies, but they just serve as sort of a rapid response to regional issues um, for local spiritual assemblies. Um, and these are just, these again are elected annually. They deal with local matters only. It's like what you were talking about before. Um, they deal with marriages, funerals, they deal with education. They deal with all of the 19 day feasts and Holy day observances and getting those organized and you know making those happen. Um, And all of these are all of these offices are elected um, by secret ballot uh, by all adult members of the Baha'i faith. And the book that I read said that you're not an adult until you're 21, um, according to Baha'is. And then that in addition to the secret ballot situation, which is cool because it's super democratic, um, you're not allowed to campaign in these elections. Um, So literally... You could write down whoever's who whatever member of the community, whatever adult member of the community you think is fit to to fill these positions and whoever gets the most votes gets it. Um, and so I wondered if there was like this like possibility where like you get vote, you get elected and then you like don't actually want to do the job. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It was just something that kind of um, struck me while I was thinking about this stuff.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I would imagine that there's probably some type of, like, you know, if someone's done it before, they're probably like, okay, we're going to try to let every adult in the community do it. And maybe right. if you do get elected, you could probably be like, actually, I don't want to do this. But I feel like, yeah, it just depends. Cause it's probably considered an honor to be, right to kind right. Of lead your community. So, but I don't know.
0: Um, plus, I also wonder, like, you know,
1: how many people
0: who are justices in the universal house of justice were like also members of national spiritual assemblies at one point, And like how much like moving up the ranks there sort
1: of is. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of how it goes. I think, I mean, I don't know necessarily about the local spiritual assembly, but I do think for the, say so that one's probably different. Yeah. I bet you for the regional Baha'i council, like someone probably, you probably have to get elected to that before. And you move up through before
0: you're going to, because
1: on right. a certain like, isn't the universal house of justice elected by the national spiritual assemblies. So people kind of have to know who you are. So I think that like, you probably do move up. Yeah, that's true. Right. So
0: there's not official campaigning, but people would know where you stand on things. And
1: yeah, probably just because, you you know, like, so the local spiritual assemblies, uh, defer to the regional councils. Regional councils mm-hmm. defer. So probably through that connection, as you, I imagine, at the national spiritual assembly, you, you know, of all the communities in your country, right, right. So that's probably how people get to know like right. who's who.
0: Um. So those are all the elected bodies. So that's half of this, or half, sort of, of the administrative structure. And then the other side of the structure is with what are called the appointed bodies. And so. These are the International Teaching Center and the Continental Boards of Counselors. Um, so the International Teaching Center was created in 1973 by the Universal House of Justice to help study the growth and consolidation of the Baha'i faith around the world. Um, so they serve as sort of like, not really the CIA <laughs> that's like a really bad analogy, but like they, they provide information and intelligence about the actual- I'm gonna we're gonna stick with that analogy. <laughs> okay. They provide intelligence, about the specific communities around the world to the universal house of justice, because like those nine people can't actually like realistically know everything that's going on in the Baha'i faith around the world.
1: Yeah. And I would say that they're also, it is a missionary faith. So people are actively like out trying to convert, right? Maybe you haven't seen that because you may not have acted with Baha'is, but that is something that is important in the faith. So I think just knowing how is that, how is this mission successful? Do we need to allocate more resources to that? I think it's more about that as opposed to like, you know, we need to do everything that you're doing, right but just on. how are our efforts here going? Do we need to contribute more or yeah. less? Like what does the situation look like?
0: Um, and then for the Continental Board of Counselors, these folks are appointed by the Universal House of Justice for five-year terms, and they work with the Universal House of Justice and the Teaching Center to inform both of those bodies about the national communities on their continents. Um, And so that you have one of these for each of the continents. I don't know if they have one for Antarctica. I didn't even look. Um, I can't imagine they do,
1: but, um,
0: but for the other six continents, um, they keep everyone kind of informed. And so I wonder if that didn't rise out of this, like need to be better informed about like, as the Baha'i faith grew, you know, it's like suddenly this becomes an unwieldy thing to like keep track of. So Yeah, yeah that's
1: true. Uh, the only two things I'll add to that is this, I'm almost positive that in terms of the administrative structure, the elected stuff, mm-hmm. women can be a part of all levels except for the Universal House of Justice. Okay. And then the way that they keep track of membership is or if you're a Baha'i or not, is I say membership because you actually have what's called a membership card. So once you officially become a Baha'i, you are then, you sign a membership card. And that's how they know how many people are in the faith. But there seems to be like, say I got a membership card, but I'm not really active in my community. Am I still a Baha'i? Am I not a Baha'i? It seems to be that they count based on like how many membership cards have been given out. So right on. Well, I think we're done. So that's, that's the, Baha'i Baha'i faith, faith. Or the, the Baha'i Faith. One of the world's newest yes. religions.
0: Um, yeah. So thank you all for listening um, and putting up with us for eight episodes. Uh, that's yeah. exciting. Um, if you, hopefully you like what we're doing if you're putting up with us. If you don't, that's like some serious dedication. <laughs> um, but if you like what we're doing, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever the place is that you're getting or you're listening to us. Um, we would really like to hear what you think about what we're doing. Um, feel free to drop us an email at religiously crap. I forgot the podcast thing.
1: <laughs> Religiouslitpodcast at gmail.com.
0: <laughs> um, uh, you can also find us on Twitter at pod and on Facebook at facebook.com slash religiously literate. Please come follow us. That's where we post our newest episodes. That's where I post my funny tweets about um, different countries that have listeners in them now. Um, Yeah. So come give us a listen and a follow and we're almost at 500 total listens. So thank you all for all of that. We are two away as of this recording, which is very exciting. I can't believe that yes. our stuff has been listened to 500 times, but here we are. Um, so,
1: And shout oh, out yes. to our California listeners who have surpassed the <laughs> Kansas <laughs> listeners, which, again, I don't know who is listening in California. Like I know maybe two or three, but not enough for them to surpass. So whoever you are, thank you very much. We appreciate your dedication. And our Kansas friends, they got to kick it up a notch. Nice. Yeah,
0: for real. Where are you at, Lawrence? <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> All right.